Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm joined by the man with a voice made for podcasts, my co-host, the one and only John Kaplan. Afternoon, Cap. How are you, buddy? Hey, buddy. Good to, good to see you. Does that mean he's, he's got a face for radio? Is that what you're trying to tell people? I have no I, I didn't go there. I didn't say anything like that. <laughs> it's good to see you, buddy. Really excited nice for this guest today. Well, Cap, today our very special guest is Jeremy Burton, who's the CEO of an exciting startup named Observe. Jeremy is really a multi-talented guy with a multi varied background. He started his career at Oracle, where he was in product management and grew his way up the ladder to become the senior vice president of product and services marketing. After Oracle, Jeremy became the senior vice president and chief marketing officer at Symantec, where he then grew to become group vice president for enterprise security and data management. Then, after Symantec, Jeremy became the CEO of Serena Software before he moved to EMC as the Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer. And when he was at EMC, Jeremy became the President of Products for EMC until Dell's acquisition of EMC, where Jeremy became the Chief Marketing Officer of Dell. So today we find Jeremy as the CEO of Observe and also as a board member of Snowflake. Welcome, Jeremy. How are you today? How are you doing? Great. Glad to get the invite, man. Yeah. Cap, say hi to say hi to Jeremy. Jeremy, it's great to uh, great to finally meet you. I've heard a ton about you through John and and through some of the people on your team. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah. For us. No, likewise, likewise. We bring Cap along because he's got that that radio voice, Jeremy. That's why we bring him along. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Hey, Jeremy, Please. let's start with you telling the audience a little bit about um, Observe and then how Observe helps helps customers. That would be a great starting point. Yeah, so we're an you know, early stage startup, uh, about 150 people. Um, starting to get really interesting. We've we spent a long time uh, getting to market fit, but it feels like forever, and I, and I will probably talk about that later. Um, but yeah, this year I've had the, the breakout and really the, the the idea for the company was that most companies are becoming digital and that their businesses are now online. Um, if they have problems with their website or with their app or the, the digital means by which they communicate, then they've got to troll shit. They've got to find out what the problem is because you know revenue could be at risk. And so we help people troubleshoot those distributed applications, help them identify root cause. Um, we would say uh, three times faster. And then we help people save a buck or two while doing it. You know, we, we have a different architecture, as you'd imagine, uh, with a modern company. And um, yeah, we've seen that uh, some of the economics on Observe of, you know, three, four, five times cheaper than incumbent offerings. So, you know, we're, we feel like we've got everything that uh, that the market's demanding and uh, it's an exciting year. Yeah. And who are some of the companies you compete against? Yeah, it's a whole cast of characters. Uh, the mission was was kind of mighty and, and broad, but uh, Splunk is probably the most well-known. Um, yeah, Splunk, Datadog are probably the two big incumbents. You know, New Relic, AppDynamics, uh, Elastic. There's a, a laundry list of companies. Some of the newer companies will be like Grafana and Honeycomb and uh, Lightstep and, you know, folks like that. But you got another, like you're a new technology. You have some of the older technologies are getting bought up by Companies like Cisco, AppDynamics got acquired by Cisco, Splunk's getting acquired by Cisco. You think it's just yeah. changing, as you pointed out, changing technology? 
Yeah, you you see this time and time again. I think it's the the benefit of having uh, uh, some gray hairs is is that you know these transitions in markets happen quite often. And I think what you're seeing is the the, the incumbents. I mean, they were the very good products that were designed for a different era. Uh, all of the growth is in troubleshooting them, the, the sort of new and modern distributed applications. And so I think the bigger companies, they often, you know, they have a decision to make. Uh, do we acquire? You know, can we acquire a startup maybe maybe like Observe so that we can they can offer that to their customers to to their install base, um, or should they rearchitect? And so the folks that um, I think have maybe tried the acquisition strategy and it hasn't worked out so great, other folks that have tried the rearchitecture and it hasn't worked out so great. Um, I think those are the folks that are getting acquired. I mean, uh, New, New Relic Consumer went to, to private equity. And then most recently, as, as you point out, Splunk uh, going to Cisco. And, and my, my belief is that's going to continue. Yeah. Well, you see this, like you said, all the time over the years where technology changes and there's some new upstarts and the older vendors just really don't want to go back and re-architect. And even if they do, they expose their entire install base to the competition, which makes it really tough on them. Yeah, and even technically, if you could convince your engineering team to start again, which is what a re-architecture essentially is, which is why a lot of teams don't do it, you've got to convince the CFO. Because I always joke that if you um, if you want to know the architecture of a product, look at the price list. Yeah. Uh, so even if you could do the re-architecture, um, is the CFO going to let you cut the prices in keeping with the the better economics the new architecture would bring? And the, often the answer to that is is no. Yeah, that even happened when we went from perpetual license to subscription licenses. A lot of the old perpetual license companies didn't want to switch over. And the CFO is the main person getting in the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they get, you know, they've got a, a, a pretty exacting audience in Wall Street. And, you know, no one wants to see a big hole appear. And uh, no matter how much you try and explain it, they'll be like, okay, that sounds great. Let me sell the stock and I'll buy it back later when you guys are through this transition. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I feel like I've seen that movie many times over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you've had many roles um, in both product and in marketing, but you mainly were been some of the larger companies, right? So talk to us a little bit as after you joined Observe, you know, as a CEO of a startup, you know, where there's certain things that you had to learn that were different, you know, as you transitioned. Yeah, it's a it's a question I get asked, asked quite often actually because I'd only ever really worked at bigger companies my entire career and and yeah done quite well at that. Um, but I was dying to do a startup. I mean, I I, I should have done it earlier in my career. Um, but I think like like a lot of folks, they get into this situation where well, big companies they they kind of pay quite well, and then you know you got a wife and kids and mortgage, and you know you've got to keep paying it and. With a startup, you, you you've got to take a cut in your compensation to, in order to take a risk, for the promise of building something and and maybe covering yourself in riches later. Uh, but I was so ready to do this um, by the time you know uh, my turn uh, uh, came around, and it, it's a very it's very different to what I thought it would be. Actually, uh, I think there's a lot of people look at startups almost romantically, and wouldn't it be cool and you know, a fast-growing small company without all this process. And you, when you first sort of arrive, you realize, okay, we've got nothing. <laughs> like, we, we have no product. Um, yeah, we, we have nothing, right? There's no process. Uh, there's no momentum. There's no inertia. There's no mass. And you've got to create it all. And um, I think what maybe helped in my career, I, I've been in and out of marketing roles on and off. Um, and I think that's probably a good, for me at least, it was good preparation. I think in marketing, you're always the eternal optimist. And you, there is so much um, rejection, negativity, and things going wrong. If you're not the perpetual optimist, I, I don't know how you get out of bed on the morning and come to work, uh, let alone motivate the team when you get here. So uh, optimism is, is, as Colin Powell said, a force multiplier, even more so in a startup. Um, I'd also tell you, you get like in marketing, I feel like you get very good at being a bit uncomfortable with the unknown. 
Um, you know, I remember even in times at, at, at Oracle for sure, where it was like, okay, what are we launching? Why we don't know yet. We think it's the next version of the database. Okay, when when are we going to do it? Well, we don't know that yet. When are we going to do it? Well, yeah, we we don't know that yet. What's the messaging? Yeah, we don't know the messaging. See, so okay, well, we're going to do it on this date. And so you get very comfortable with like, okay, what do we know? What can we plan for? What can we get done? And that, I think, is probably pretty good preparation for what life is like in a startup because there are so many unknowns. If, if you're intimidated by a a blank canvas, um, don't do it uh, because there is often <laughs> um, a blank canvas to stare at and you, you've got to see that as an opportunity to, for your creativity. Um, no one's going to tell you what to do, you know, and, and most people would say, well, yeah, that's what I want. I'm sick of being told what to do. But when it comes to it, that means that you've got to roll up your sleeves. You've got to be prepared to make a mistake. You've got to maybe be humble enough to admit that you've made a mistake. Um, but yeah, for me, I feel like, although I've run engineering teams and product teams and you know, even been in, in an SE team, I feel like the marketing role probably was was maybe the best preparation. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about some of the things that you said. I mean, like you said, you come in with a blank canvas, you really have nothing, you have no resources. Um, and a lot of people that then get put in that role, they don't know how to what I call scrounge. You know, how do I scrounge for what I have to get done? How can I yeah. put these two or three things together to make it resemble something that I, you know, wish I had? Yeah. And um, and the other part of what you said is is your decisions. You can't tie your ego to your decisions. You have to be able to say, okay, I made a decision. Uh-oh, that looks, I got more information. That looks like a bad decision. I can't tie my ego to that. I got to change right away because it's so critical in startups to be able to be very versatile and flexible and move as the times demand for you to move. Yeah. I mean, pride is a, is a terrible thing. And I, I think particularly, you know, in your career, I've been, I've been quite successful in my career. I've done a lot of things right. I'm certainly more, more things right than wrong. And so you can get to this mode of thinking, well, aren't I great? Um, I've done it all. And, I know a lot of people who, I mean, I mentioned Oracle earlier, um, when you're on that, you know, uh, ship and you, you, the, the company's flying, you can convince yourself that it's down to you, right? I look, look, look at this company growing, it's multiple billions of dollars. Yeah, that's, that's all down to me. Well, <laughs> you realize, no, you, you sort of caught the train when it was going like 70 miles an hour and maybe you can get it to 71. Um, and so, yeah, you've got to have a, like a total mindset readjustment. If you think it's going to be easy or you think you're going to get it right or because you've done X, Y, and Z, like, like think again, because um, you, you almost inevitably you're going to get almost every initial decision wrong, uh, but you've got to be able to listen and look at the data and readjust and there's no pride in 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 or no harm in saying like I I I got it wrong. Let let's let's reassess. It's sort of what the job requires, in fact. Right. So we're talking about this from the CEO's point of view, and you know your product background and your marketing background is gave you just a, an unbelievably uh, well-rounded viewpoint. Um, we have a lot of listeners um, right now let's say it's December and, you know, people are trying to figure out whether they stay with what they're going to do, whether they do something else. And I just want them to hear from your point of view, somebody comes in interviews with a startup like yours. Um, what are some of the things that I have to be honest with myself about? So a um, couple of, couple of, uh, couple of different looks. What do I have to be honest with myself if yeah. I'm a CRO or frontline manager or managing managers? Those three areas are very common listeners for us to be to to realistically evaluate whether this is a good time for me, whether it will give me energy or whether it will suck the life out of me. Um, let's start with that one first at the startup level, and then let's uh, let's look at um, just advice that you'd give people: big company, startup company especially with economic times. Yeah, I think, I think whenever you're considering a move, 
Um, and maybe this is a, an atypical answer, but you got to evaluate yourself first. Uh-huh. Like, I know I think I'm great. Am I? Uh, what, what are my weaknesses? Um, what areas could I improve upon? Uh, this is not my first CEO job. I, I've done it once before, but my, my, my sort of conclusion to that experience was I've got some things to learn. And I, I actually went to work at a bigger company with a bunch of folks that I learned a tremendous amount from um, because I felt it would come in useful when I went back to doing the CEO role. So I think number one, it starts with like introspection, which is often the hardest thing. People say they love feedback. I think that's complete BS. Like nobody loves feedback. Well, you, you, you love being told that you suck at something. Like I don't mm-hmm. love that. Like, so, but it's, it's, it's sort of hard to, to do that introspection first. Like, could I do with staying this longer? Am I learning things here? Is this a good business that I'm just having a tough time in right now? And, and maybe it's something to do with the way I'm executing in this job. I'd, I'd say always look at that first because it's much easier to stay at a company than it is to do a new one. Mm. And by the way, if you're not being honest with yourself, you're just going to go somewhere else and get found out there as well. You know, if you don't fix your, 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 your sort of your flaw, so to speak. Um, so that'd be number one. Um, number two, uh, in terms of how do you evaluate like a new company, um, I don't really know a lot about consumer software, so I'm, I'm probably not going to give sage advice to, to folks who've been successful in maybe B2C, but in B2B companies, I, I've done quite well over the years because I've been in companies that address big markets, you know, Oracle database. Uh, Veritas storage software, semantic security, uh, EMC storage software. Um, I mean, Dell pretty much the whole of infrastructure. And even though I had tough times at all of those companies from from um, you know from from year to year, um, there was a big addressable market um, w- with a product that was differentiated. And I'd start right there. Mm. Is this a big addressable market? And is the is the value proposition not the features? Is the value proposition the thing that this person I'm interviewing with is telling me? Is that differentiated relative uh, to the competition? Uh, if you've got those two things, then you know you've got the the deck stacked in your favor, so to speak. Tell us uh, how that worked for you, Jeremy. With um, I thought I think I heard an interview where you said it took you a good four and a half years to really nail the you know the market fit at observe and i'm sure that it's still evolving so if it takes longer for market fit and the criteria is is that there's a big addressable market there's a good value proposition balance those up for me yeah i think if 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 someone's saying they've got a killer product with a massive value proposition that's differentiated in in, in, a, in a in a huge market. Some and, and by the way, they're only two years in. Uh, I I wouldn't I'd, I'd, I'd do a lot of sniffing around that one. I just I don't buy it. Like software, one thing that has not changed for me in the last twenty five years is how long it takes to get software right. And and by the way, uh, the other thing, the thing that has changed, which makes it more difficult, is that the buyer is way more discerning. I mean, back when John was carrying a bag, you know, you could you could sell things the customer never used. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you can't. Selfware, vaporware. Yep. Right. You, you. It's you know, if it's not been used in our business because we're usage based, it's not. There is no revenue. You know, with, with a usage based business model, if there's no usage, you don't have a business. And so, I'd, I'd say the buyer is more discerning. It is um, as difficult to write software and so the the sort of magical value proposition that's great and differentiated in a couple of years is i i I, i'd look long and hard at that one um but you know if if there's a great founding team uh if there's uh long-term investors if it's taken three four years to to build the sort of foundations of the business um and it's in a big addressable market i'd be like okay that, that smells at least like the kind of business that could hunt in the long run. And and for me, at least, I mean, I, I, I've i always worked at companies that have big big markets. And so when I, I came to a startup, I was like, okay, I, I want to work somewhere. If I'm going to spend day and night working on this thing, I want to work somewhere that could be a big company. 
not something that could be sold as a, an acquisition after a couple of three years, but something that could be, you know, worth billions of dollars. That That's what I want to spend my time doing. Yeah. Since we're on product market fit, talk to us a little bit about difficulties of finding product market fit. Yeah, that's one of those things that coming from a larger company, I didn't even know what it was really. Um, and it, I, I can now actually see very clearly why large companies are terrible at introducing new products. I'd say almost all of them have absolutely no concept of what market fit is and the level of like detail that is required in order to get there. And I would tell you, and I know engineering always gets the credit for um, fixing the product or building the product, um, but it would have been very hard for us to be where we're at today without having a, a, a CRO. I mean, Keith Butler, our CRO, is I think one of the best in, in the business. He's, he's done multiple startups, yep. so he's done something that I had not done. And he didn't always know what was wrong with the product, meaning he didn't he didn't know what, what what needed to be done to fix the product, but he knew when something wasn't working. Like he he wasn't trying to tell me what I wanted to hear. He was trying to tell me like what isn't working and why, you know, this isn't going as quickly as it should. And he obsessed about it. Like when there was something not right, like all weekend, he would be trying to figure out like how to articulate that. And, you know, for my part, I think I've just, I've got to try and keep a, or maintain an environment within the company where, you know, engineering has got open ears. You know, they're not building just what they want to build. Um, they're building in response to what the sales team feel the big blockers are. And that doesn't happen everywhere. You know, it's early, early on, founders have got a very keen idea of what it is they think they need to build. And at a macro level, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're probably correct, but the devil's in the details. And and I would tell you almost every feature that we built, when we thought we got it right, we got it wrong. Almost every feature. Right. Um, and so it's not just sort of humility from me, the CEO, that's not enough. Your, your founders have got to have that as well. And um, there's a... a, a I'm a big fan of Colin Powell's lessons in leadership. He's got these 17 lessons in leadership. And the the one there is uh, the, 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 the person in the field is always right and less proved otherwise. Yeah. And that, that is a great sort of mantra for any uh, founder, particularly on the product or engineering side of things. Um, and it doesn't mean that the person in the field is always right um, because but you've got to prove otherwise. Um, and it, and I think it's a good sort of gut check to say, yeah, my, my response here should be, tell me more. How can I help? Let me listen. Let me understand. Um, and then let me take action. So, yeah, the journey to market fit is is like nothing I've ever encountered in my career. Um, John will remember this a little bit from the board meetings. I, I characterize it as the death zone. Now, that might not be motivating to everyone, but it kind of is. You yeah. don't have forever. Like, because even if you have the funding, how long can you keep people believing without the revenue breaking out? The sales team are going to quit, right? You can't have a ridiculous comp plan every year just to keep their heads in the game. The engineering team, they're going to get frustrated. So it's, you know, one thing is getting the product to the point where you feel like you've got a competitive feature set. The next bit, though, is the hard bit, which is, um, can I get productivity out the sales team? And have I built a product not for 10 or 100 or even 1,000 people? Have I built one for 10,000 people? Yeah, that, that's what you've got to really get to. And it, it's very disorienting. Um, like in my career, I, I, I feel like I rarely, if ever, had self-doubt. Um, this journey to market fit will bring up every element of self-doubt you ever imagined or didn't want to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple things there. One, and this is a lesson for anybody that thinks they're going to step into a raw startup as a CRO. In those early days, as like you're talking about, you're really a product manager. You're going out and talking yeah. to customers. You're gaining feedback, and you're trying to steer You know the way in which this product should be developed so that it does have fit with the customers. And then the other thing is um, that you mentioned, and I just want to highlight is as your product develops, you start to find that the product 
fit into a different ideal customer profile than you might have originally thought, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because at once you have an idea, then you start talking to the, and you build your ideal customer profile. We're going to pr build the product this way. Then you start talking to customers and then that's everything starts to change, right? You've experienced yeah, I mean, that's so, so true. I mean, you know, we, we started off selling to, 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 to companies that looked like us, right? SaaS companies using AWS, Kubernetes, easy to get a meeting. They're prepared to take a risk. Um, and then you realize, yeah, that, that market, it, A, it's very competitive. And, and B, although we have a value proposition there, it's it's not as strong as if we're talking to a larger enterprise. And when you talk to a larger enterprise, you know, they, they've got pain an order of magnitude more than the early stage startup. They have pain today versus maybe perceived pain in future. And so then you start to think, well, okay, are we doing this right? You know, maybe maybe we, sh we should move the, the, you know, the sales team up. Well, it's going to be harder to get meetings, yes, but meetings that we do get the value proposition stronger and we noticed um i mean the asp went up 10x um just by going to companies that were a little bit bigger you know companies of 200 to 2000 employees versus zero to to 200 so yeah again it's another one of those things that we thought we were right but then you know when we got there when we saw the reaction you you, you have to reevaluate and your time is not your friend, so you don't have forever to, to sort of reevaluate. You, you've got to make a decision. Okay, are we, are we going to go here now? Oh, and I just rolled out the con plan and this and that, and we've got the list and the target. And okay, but now we've got to change it. Yeah. Now you talked on, on the other point is you talked about it today. It's no longer good enough to build product market fit for tens of companies or hundreds of companies. You got to build it for tens of thousands of companies. So, how has product market fit changed over the years? I mean, like you said, you know, when you're selling perpetual software, you could get the customer to sign the license and you were on your way and then subscription, it became a little tougher. And now with consumption, it's really tough. Is that how product market fit has really changed, Jeremy? Yeah, I, th I think um, I think it's harder. You, it, it, it's, a, it's a lot more exacting. The customer is more educated. They get to try the software before they buy it they in, in in the case of observe they get to load their own data and try it um if we get the i mean it used to be i mean certainly in my days at oracle we we, we we'd seek out the most senior person and we'd go sell it to the most senior person and they'd sort of jam it down the throat of the folks that use the software and you know, the people like that use the software did not buy it and Maybe some of that is true today in that the buyer is not always the user, but the users are much more influential than they ever were. That's a great point. And, and, and so if, if if your product is not giving people like a good, you know, first day's experience or first hour's experience, um, then that, that could, you know, that could be a real thorn in your side in the sales process. You know, so you, I think you, you, you've got to take all of these things into account now, whereas I think in the past it was a factor, but never the, probably the most important factor. Um, but yeah, the users are way more knowledgeable and, and have hands-on experience with the product before they buy it. With, with that being said, Jeremy, and your experience in, uh, vast experience in product and product marketing, how do you keep your teams focused on the right things. And I call it an outside in mentality versus an inside out mentality. So you have to be on the cutting edge. What you're describing is you got to be on the cutting edge of what is the it? user is experiencing, what they're demanding, um, how to help them link what they do to what others do inside of their company through your technology. How do you encourage the people from, you know, going to whiteboards and just coming up with cool new features that would just be awesome? Uh, to uh, you know, knowing that there's a we're we're solving a problem with what we're investing in. Yeah, I think first of all, um, it, it's and this may be not a Silicon Valley thing. You, you have to create an environment where the sales guys can come back to engineering and say this sucks. And engineering has got to be like, okay, let's talk about that thing sucking. 
not like you're wrong, sell around it, you know, you, they don't understand, they're not smart enough, blah, blah, blah. It's a training, I've heard them all, it's a training issue. Right. But it, it, like the brutal honesty at, at the early stage is your friend. And I, I would go as far as to say the, the sort of, I call it happy years, right? Where you, you only, you have to sell the ears, but you only hear the good things. That is fatal early early on. If, if you don't have like a, a, a culture in the company where it's okay to bring negative feedback and openly discuss negative feedback, um, then yeah, you, you're never going to get to the market fit. And so I think one, it's a, it's a, it's an environment and it's gotta be a culture within the company of uh, discussion. Uh, the second thing is that, um, and we, we, we hired this great guy in from Stripe, uh, Chi, um, and obviously he'd run big organizations, but she's got like, he's kind of a wartime manager in that, you know, you, 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 as you close in on the market fit, you need like a like a wartime footing, which is, okay, what are the top things we need to do? Who's working on this today? Um, and then literally meet every day and see the engineering team burn through the list of asks from the sales team. Like our biggest customer, you know, big bank, very, I mean, they're hard to please. They have their own dedicated JIRA. And we every day we meet on what the critical issues are for that customer. And so the customer can see tangible progress, not week to week or month to month, but day to day. And so she's got like a way of um, figuring out on a day to day basis, um, how we get most of the people working on the most important things most of the time. And uh, don't, that can be a little bit unempowering at times because once you're in the war room, it's a flat organization. That, that there is no management interference. Um, you need that in peacetime, don't get me wrong. But in wartime, when you've got a fire burn and you have to come up with a mode of operation within the company to, to attack the problem and know who's doing what and by when. Jeremy, and, you're, you're, you're bringing up such outstanding points, but I'm also cognizant that when I think about you um, and your experience going into a startup, talk to me about um, the scenario where you have what I call the, it's not very fair, but I'll just call it the crazy founder syndrome, where it's the technical founder is in the CEO position sometimes. And you're talking about, you know, being open for feedback, um, you know, not saying it's a training issue, the salespeople are too stupid or what have you. And I'm not saying that about technical founders in general. I'm just saying uh -huh. that sometimes yes. you can have a difficult time you're a CRO and you're going somewhere and there's the technical founder, uh, give some advice. Um, I think there's a, there's a way in which there's a right way and a wrong way to bring up the issue. Number one, don't try and solve the problem. Like ra ra raise the, raise what the problem is. And uh, I'd say number one and number two, um, I think judgment is pretty important. Not, not every, not every problem is equal. Right. So some problems are way more important than others. And so it may be a situation where you've got to pick your battles, but I'd say figure out what the most important battles to fight are and figure up, figure out the right way to, to bring that out. Um, and also, um, look, if, if you're seeing this issue firsthand, there are going to be other people in the organization that are also seeing this issue. And it doesn't, harm to have one or two other people who are perhaps influential raise this the same issue um so i'd, I'd say sort of those three things um you know it, it it's always a game of dealing with 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 people and um you know i'd, I'd say probably cro's more than most are good at dealing with people um yeah. and i think engineering in general what i found they react badly to is if you tell them you know, uh, you've got to engage them. You've got to have them understand what the problem is and what impact that is having. And most engineers that I've met, once you engage them and you've talked a little bit about the problem, they love solving problems. So you've got to explain the problem. You're not going to tell them how to solve the problem. You know, if only we had this feature. No, like explain the problem um and the impact it's having on your organization and then that, that that would be probably be my advice and and you, you can't have a different one every day 
Hey, Jeremy, I want to go back to one of the things you said um, where, you know, and this happens to many startups, they start at the low end of the market and then, you know, product market fit might have changed and they try to climb up to the enterprise, which is also something you have to navigate the transition of that successfully. What have you found is some of the keys or critical factors in trying to navigate that climb from the low end of the market to, you know, to up to the enterprise? Yeah, I, did. I think um, on on that one for us, it it it, it comes down to um, you know you you're looking at feedback on the value proposition. What you know what what is our value proposition, and then how much pain does the customer have really? And you're not always going to get that like right away. You might have to go through a few. Um, customers to, to figure out that there just wasn't enough there to retain that customer or they said the pain was there and therefore the value was there but it wasn't really um, and then you know when you when you hook onto a slightly bigger customer then you're like oh I get it if there's multiple environments or if there's this many people in the engineering team or there's this many incidents a year all of a sudden their engagement uh, not not just in the sales process but even yeah, you know, when you get to implementation and beyond, is is an order of magnitude more. And you know the the assessment is although it's easy to maybe get the new logos at the low end of the market, it's easy to bring them on board, and the price point is lower. Maybe because the pain isn't as great, they churn more quickly, yeah. um, or the usage isn't as great. You know, the, therefore the NRR in your business is not going to be as great. So for us, it was sort of looking intently, sometimes painfully at. Um, not not just the sales cycle, but l- look at who's churning and why. You know, if, if you're not solving a big enough problem, then you become discretionary spent. And so uh, as happened, you know, a year ago when that segment of the market, you know, startups goes through a tough time, then that's when you see the churn. And a bigger company, if they go through a tougher time, well, if they've got, if you're solving a bigger problem for them, then you're not going to churn. Uh, well, that it it all makes sense, but yeah. again, for me, it, it sort of comes back to um, that that sort of brutal honesty of like, am I really listening to what the customers say? What is happening? Um, are we as valuable as I think we are? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge. It's a big listening exercise. Yeah. What about scaling a startup? You talked about how product market fit might have changed over the years. Do you think scaling? startups changed over the over the years yeah I, I i think first of all having metrics around when to pull the trigger on expanding the sales team and not is i, I mean i never knew any of this before coming to, to a startup but what should we expect your average rep to do on a quarter to quarter basis um you, you know how should we expect that to change um over time uh, what what does it mean to have like a breakout in the numbers? And honestly, with that one, I I feel like I didn't even know it till we saw it. Um, and yeah, I, I think sales sales there's always art to it, right? But there is way more science to it than I ever believed. Yeah. It's it's scale. You you you're, at bigger companies, you kind of miss a lot of that, right? Because oh, are we hitting the number? The productivity numbers get kind of fudged a little bit. Um, and the beautiful thing about a startup, and if if, if folks out there really want to learn, you, you're going to see like firsthand uh, what it means to measure things at every sort of minute level of detail. And I feel like that that journey to market fit and then scaling beyond that, um, that that's what it is. And what are you scaling? Well, you, you sort of scale in the revenue number, but you, you scale in the, the productivity model behind sales. And then you're scaling the engineering team. And I, I think some things have, have maybe changed in terms of the expectations for productivity. Some things are the same. Like you can't scale an organization without hiring good people and good managers. You, you know, if you hire a bunch of weak managers, they're going to hire a bunch of weak people beneath them. And guess what? The numbers are not going to work out. So I think I think some things are, are the same, um, but the the sort of science behind what it means to scale an organization is is maybe a little bit different to what it has been in the past. Yeah, and you you commented a little bit, Jeremy, about um, the days of 
you know, selling an enterprise wide solution and, and, and having that decision maker jam that uh, decision down the throat of the users is that that train has left the station. So let's talk a little bit about the skill sets of sellers. Yeah. Um, when I come to a startup, sometimes I can be obsolete if I'm the one that's, you know, great at working at the user level and I, you know, haven't, I, I haven't tested my skills in a while for the enterprise or vice versa. You have people that, you know, are at the enterprise level, but still with your product, you're, you're selling at the enterprise level, you still have to have a incredible understanding of use and productivity at the user level. Um, do you have any advice there from a scaling perspective? Um, I, I think what, what becomes critical, uh, I mean, look in our space, what we figured if, if, if folks are familiar with the domain, I don't mean they need to know observability, but do you know what a modern application is? Do you know what a modern database is? Do you know what cloud native infrastructure is? There's, there's things that um, if you're familiar with uh, the, the, the general domain, you're going to be able to qualify quickly. And I feel like where folks get stuck and at our stage where it's hard to scale the organization is if people spend their time on things that don't work out. And a big part of this, like early on, when you get a new prospect, can the salesperson really pull the thread and qualify that? If they can't, they're going to spend their time on a whole bunch of things that are going to end in tears. And that, if that happens often enough, the sales team is going to miss the number. There's going to be productivity issues and, and bad things are going to happen from there. And, and I'd say, yeah, we're going to get to a point in the not too distant where, look, there's a director or VP of observability in every company and everybody yeah. knows what it is. And people are coming to observe going, hey, Jeremy, I need X amount of observe. We're not at that point right now, right? We go into organizations and there isn't a head of observability. A lot of people don't know what observability is. So, so who's going to explain that to them? They may have seen something online or they may have read something about it, but who's going to correct them on perspective? They may have heard it from Splunk. Um, why is our perspective different to Splunk's? And I think you find all the time, particularly in B2B with earlier stage companies, you're always on the hook to explain this emerging segment and why you're different and sort of confidence or command of the message there helps big time, not just in helping you articulate what the company does, but in qualifying the deal. You know, if you can't do that, you're going to spend your time on a bunch of things that just are not going to work out. Hey, Jeremy, earlier on, you talked about how your product helps um, companies also cut costs. Do you think that in this poor economic environment where a lot of companies are looking to cut costs, has it caused customers to look at a solution like Observe or other solutions differently than when we were in a robust economy, you know, three years ago? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's um, it, it's sort of an old saying that you never want to be discretionary. You know, you always, you know, you always want to be in a market where people have to buy. And these kind of environments, I think, smoke that out. Anything that's discretionary, that I mean, particularly we're talking only about smaller companies. If you're discretionary in a smaller company that is conserving cash, you're going to be out the door. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think you, you know, you you absolutely want to be in a market where where people need to spend, I would tell you that has helped our pipeline. It has helped demand because whereas folks maybe weren't looking for a different platform, um, now they are. And and that's not just because costs have increased, data volumes have increased. So it, it's like, okay, I've got more data and now I want to do it for less money. It's it's sort of a it, it's it's sort of a twofer. So I think some folks maybe for the first time in five or ten years are actually looking for you know, a different way uh, to do something that they're very familiar with, but to do it, you know, in a in a different way. We, we've we got to be a little bit careful. Um, I'm always worried when people call up saying, hey, can you give me Splunk for less money or Datadog for less money? Um, you know, you've got to pull the thread on that a little bit and ask why. why. Why is that more expensive? Are you doing that? Okay, do you know why that's expensive? I know they're charging you more, but do you know why they're charging you more? So we always try and get our guys to not just um, you know, jump on the hook and go chase in a 
cheaper Splunk or a cheaper Daybug or cheaper whatever, it, mm. it, it sort of asks the why question and try and get into, okay, those products are architected differently. They were architected a decade or more ago, and that's why they can't cope with the data volumes, and that's why they're more expensive. And so, you know, they may give you a discount, but you're going to be back here next year, you know. So that, that, that I think, is it can be great in that your pipeline can get filled up with people looking for a cheaper X. But I think from a sales standpoint, just you got to be careful with a cheaper X. Um, again, you could qualify and you can waste a lot of time on those. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding the why, like you said, is the big thing in any mm-hmm. sales situation. So you just don't jump into the wrong direction. Let's yeah. switch gears a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about the role that you think AI is playing now or will be playing in applications, I heard you talk a little bit about this once before. Yeah, the um, ALA, I, I think, is uh, we love it. We love we love fashion and tech. I mean, we're sort of in the fashion business at one level, and we we love a good trend and a bubble. And no sooner is the crypto bubble burst that that, that AI one is here. Um, I think personally, I think there's a lot more to this AI. Uh, bubble, if you like, then then maybe the the crypto bubble or some bubbles that have gone before. Uh, there's going to be some big winners in in this space. Um, the promise of uh, generative AI is it's going to change the way humans interact with machines. And I think we've all watched um, Star Trek for many years, where you know, hey computer, tell me X. Yeah, we're, we're almost there. You know, um, that that sort of very natural interaction between a human and a computer is going to be the spoken word or the, the written word. Um, and, and for me, then, that means more productivity for more users. Um, novice users who maybe would take weeks to get up to speed can maybe be productive in minutes and hours versus days and weeks. Um, I think it's maybe going to blur the lines a little bit on the way certain processes in the enterprise are. I think it's very easy for you to engage in a process that you know nothing about. Uh, people tend to have, you know, they organize companies around process. Uh, so this may well impact at a macro level the way companies are organized. Um, I, I, I think that um, in our own space, one of the things we're looking at is is training large language models on on incident history. And so for any given incident, you may be able to dynamically generate a run book of tasks that someone would have to execute in order to solve the problem. Uh, and in fact, you, you might not need to wait for the human to execute the tasks. So imagine if someone was, was coming to troubleshoot a problem and they have a custom dashboard that's created for uniquely for that incident. And, and all of the data that they need to troubleshoot that incident is just right there. Um, in, in most enterprises, that's an hour and a half right there. Yeah. And so we don't need sort of the Star Trek computer tell me root cause of this problem we've never seen before. I'm not, I'm not sure it's going to do all of that. But gathering information that a user needs to troubleshoot and having not needing 150 people on an incident call for an hour, yeah, we can do that. I don't, I don't think that's rocket science. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on generative AI and, and what it can do because, yeah, that ultimately they're statistical engines, large language models, and so anything that is a repeatable process, we should be able to get very, very good at and and, and automate. So then you'll basically you should be able to take some of the things, especially in your space, that some of the experts do that always you know kind of lands on their lap. And get some more of the novice people to be able to handle some of those incidents, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, in, in DevOps alone, I think um, that there's been a deficit of of DevOps engineers for the last decade. And so, when people say, "Are, are you worried AI taking people's jobs?" No, because <laughs> most mostly in, in in the space that we're in, there aren't enough people to fill the jobs. Yeah. So if you could get more productivity out of the people that are in the jobs, I think most people will be doing backflips. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of the, the the sort of routine tasks or repetitive tasks that I think are quite tedious, particularly to technical people, 
if we could have the the generative AI figure most of that out, I, I think that would be just it would be actually a productivity benefit for the smart people in the organization because they wouldn't have to spend the time doing all the things that they candidly don't like doing anyway. So I'm pretty yeah. bullish on where this goes. So you're yeah, not you a just, doomer on you're not a doomer on AI. You're you you're you're taking really more of the positive aspect of AI saying that it's gonna make people a lot more productive, organizations a lot more productive. It's not just gonna start putting people out of jobs. A hundred percent. I mean, I think I think IT in general, if you look at the, what what has been the promise of IT over the last fifty years, it's been productivity. And uh, anything and everything that we've invented generally has been about, certainly in, in the B2B world, has, has been about you know, improving productivity. And the businesses that adopt technology most quickly typically have the best productivity numbers. And I feel like AI is just then the, the, the next frontier. I'm, I'm not worried about us finding other things to do or you know, bigger problems to solve. Um, because I think what, what Gen AI is going to do is um, uh, allow the the smart folks to focus on the things that that really matter. I mean, I, again, in our space, I think people love taking a screenshot of what their system is saying and posting it into Slack so that to wait for someone to come along and figure out what the next step is. If that could just be done like automatically. Um, then, hey, maybe we could work on not whether our, our application or our website had an error, but is actually who got the error? Is that our best customers? Is that our worst customers? Is this customer's revenue? I mean, t- to me, there's so many great business questions that we need people working on. Uh, if a lot of the more mundane tech stuff could be taken care of automatically, then bring it on. I love the, uh, I love the uh, perspective that you have on AI. I've heard uh, a, a few of your talks on it and, what I'm struck by is that the problem of the CIO, um, it changes a little bit. But if you look at like the last 10, 15 years <clears throat> and you ask, you know, the survey says um, their biggest challenges <laughs> are aligning IT with the business. And the second thing is access to top talent, which translates into your conversation of productivity uh, at the user level. And I heard you say something that I thought that like, I thought was really powerful. If you're a company right now and you're not making some kind of bet on uh, focusing on how to make your user experience easier with AI, then you're probably missing the boat. Is that is that valid? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, we don't necessarily know everything and and uh, about how AI is going to impact our space, but it will impact our space. And if we have one of our founders working on it. Um, it, it, it's that important to us um, because like like all technology and the Gen AI is no different, it's not as good as everyone's making you believe online. I mean, if I, if I look at LinkedIn or, or, or Twitter, my feed is full of people telling me the incredible things that AI can do. You, you'd actually be shocked how unincredible a lot of it is when you actually yeah. try and use it. But um, imagine what it's going to be like in five years, Right. Um, it, it is going to be a game changer. It's going to take some time to mature, um, but it, it the promise I think is 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 there for all to see. Um, and yeah, at your peril, sort of ignore what it could do for your business or the way it could impact your business. Do you think it's going to be a major tech shift like the internet was, then the cloud was, and now AI is? where it's going to cause a lot of winners and losers as far as companies go in the market? Uh, oh, undoubtedly. And, and, and I do think, um, you know, some industries that uh, maybe we all love to hate, like the legal industry or healthcare, um, all of those complicated words, you know, I, I can cut and paste a lot of that stuff into GPT and it's going to tell me in layman's terms what yeah. this legalese says. Uh, yeah, I, I think healthcare, there's certain industries I think are going to be transformed because um, you pay a lot of money for experts to explain to you yeah. the complicated language that something else is written in. And I think all of those kind of industries where a domain expert is required to explain, they're sort of the gatekeeper and you've got to pay them a lot of money. I, I think 
that 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 interface is changing. It's going to be blown wide open. And so if your if your value is in doing this translation from complicated domain specific language to, to layman's, you find somewhere else to add value because that's not going to be it. Yeah, um, it's and, like and tax so, accounting, accounting and tax accounting. Right, right, right. I mean, think about it this way, right? TurboTax was a was a big breakthrough, right? Because it was a consumer friendly way to do something very yeah. complicated. I mean, a lot of industries are going to get TurboTaxed. You know, because um, the interface is going to ch change dramatically, and I, I think um, in in it, like in the world of B two B in in our space, yeah, ours is going to change. But um, I still feel like AI can't make a database run queries that it that it can't physically run because the data is not there or the right. you know the the organization of the data is wrong. I mean, you still need something under the covers to actually do work, answer questions, and do all that good stuff. But the number of people that can then interact with that is going to be an order of magnitude greater. Um, and and so you better make sure your system can 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 scale because more people are probably going to engage. You know, you you, um, you, you there's a whole bunch of sort of caveats that I think. Um, you know, almost every software company is going to have to think through, which is why, yeah, if you don't have someone really important in your company working on this, then you're making a mistake. Yeah. Let's switch gears one more time here, Jeremy. So over the years, you know, you've been in product, you were a CEO, you were in marketing, you've watched salespeople execute sales process for many different products, many different companies. Are there a couple things that you found makes the, make the best salespeople? Great question. Um, yeah. yeah, no. I, I, look, I've been very fortunate. I worked with with um, many, many good salespeople and sales leaders. I, I feel like some of it comes down to, I mean, the the sort of character and determination and not taking no for an answer and you know i've always gravitated towards folks that just never give up right and it's it's sort of as old as the hills and you, you know you would always say um maybe has been a character trait of, of, of great salespeople. i still don't think that that's changed um you never know and folks who give up too early never find out you know um so i, I i'm still sort of taking up like working with folks who've got that mindset. Um, I also think folks who are, are curious, and I mentioned earlier, Keith obsesses when something's not working. Like, why is it not working? Um, it, it's not just about telling a good story or selling around something or having a relationship. It, it, it's sort of the curiosity and intellectual honesty and um, asking the question is, like, why is this not working? I mean, one of my good friends, Bill Scamlett at, at, at EMC, you know, he, he, by his own admission, would say, yeah, sales is what he does. He's actually very, very good at marketing as well. Yeah. Like when a message and he's, is and not, As you pointed out before, he's very persistent. He's never given oh, up. He's never given up. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, almost, yeah, unbelievably so uh, on anything. Uh, but I, I, I saw, I mean, I love that. Right. He, he um and, and then if something's not working, like he rolls up his like he gives the message, he meets with customers. He doesn't just, you know, introduce a customer briefing and says, you know, the coffee and the donuts are at the back. Like he knows the message, he practices it, he gives it to the sales team. Um, so and, and he's got the confidence to do it because he's in the briefing set all the time. And I I think, you know. Sales leaders in particular who they internalize the message, then they know when it's not working. Uh, then they're persistent at sort of driving change. I mean, I've always liked those folks. It actually has not made my life easier, <laughs> but it's made me better. Right. You know? And then what about marketing and sales? Like over the years, I think that marketing and sales have started to work a lot closer together than in the past. Have you seen that change also? Yeah, definitely. It. Um, I. I think probably come. What comes to mind first of all was that. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's Snowflake. Um, 
it feels like one team there between you know Chris and, and Denise, and Denise yeah. actually owns the pipeline for the company. But I, I also think to say that organization solves it maybe does a like a disservice to both Chris and Denise because that their mindset is so so good on this topic. And I, I always felt when I was in marketing, uh, I was there to make the sales team successful. Um, and I, and I think where a lot of marketing folks get it wrong or they end up getting fired actually is because they think it's marketing for the sake of marketing. They look at the org chart and well, I'm a peer of the head of sales. Therefore, like if that's their strategy, what's my strategy? And it's like, no, no your strategy is their strategy. Yes. <laughs> like if you get that wrong, again, a different in a consumer company, but in a B2B company, um, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't feel like it's your job to both explain the technology for the engineering team and then make the sales team successful, then you're not going to last long. You know, if the head of sales doesn't get you the, the head of engineering well. And so I, I, I think always have that, that mindset of like, okay, I'm, I'm here to make these guys successful. Now, you know, what, what can we get done? Um, and, and so it's a classic conflict, but, I feel like definitely a shared goal, like Denise owns the pipeline, but doesn't create all the pipeline. I think, I think that's probably the ultimate metric, uh, particularly in an early stage company. Yeah. Um, but, but then certainly the, the mindset of the person coming into marketing, I always worry sort of the, the CMO who's just into the brand and you know, CMO for the sake of being CMO and doing CMO type things. I, I never felt I was that person. And I think it's often fatal. Well, the CMO job has expanded so much over the years, right? I mean, there's so many different disciplines underneath marketing these days. And I think it's really difficult for one person to go in there and have expertise in all those different disciplines. So I think you have to be really good at hiring great leaders underneath you that are really skilled and knowledgeable in each one of those disciplines. Otherwise, you get... From some of the CMOs I've seen, it gets away from them because they just don't have that expertise and they didn't hire really good leaders underneath them. Have you seen that? Oh, 100%. Um, I I think CMOs, they they sort of come in three flavors. Um, There's, uh, I'm bound to offend someone, uh, I'm I'm sure, but there's a field-oriented CMO that's very good at working with a sales leader, demand creation, um, and typically CROs kind of love that kind of mark, field marketing leader. And, uh, um, and I think they, they are the ideal kind of person to hire early in um, uh, a company's life. Why? Because it's all about, it's purely about demand creation and about the sales team. Um, a little bit later then, and, and this is a different kind of CMO, and this is more me. I, I was never the field-based demand creation type person. I was always the product person. I understood the technology. I've been an engineer. I love the storytelling. I, I was better than most at articulating what the product would do and why it was great and why it was better than the competition. Um, and, and I think that kind of background lends itself well to a like a B2B CMO job. It's not to say that if you're from the field side, you can't do it. You just need to acknowledge that you need a really freaking awesome head of product marketing, which, mm-hmm. by the way, are a nightmare to hire. Yeah. Um, but you know that that to me sort of go if you're if you're from the field side, get an awesome head of product marketing. Then there's a third type, which is more the brand type people, and they these folks do well on the consumer side of the house. I think generally they do horrible on the B two B side of the house. Yeah. Um, I. I I was probably okay at doing that stuff, um, but I think you want it all in good measure. I mean, so there, look, I mean, look, I run marketing for Dell. That's a, a consumer brand, um, but you know, it, it, it's actually not that hard to do that stuff on uh, in, in the B two B world. Uh, I think it's actually pretty easy, and I, I think um, it, again, if you get too into it, you're going to waste a bunch of money, and it's not going to make that much difference. Right. Oh, I, I tend to be very leery about hiring folks that have got more of the classical branding, marketing background, yeah, pricing, packaging, promotion, all that stuff an MBA teaches you. It's largely a waste of time. Um, 
especially yeah. in a startup where really for the for the amount of money that you're going to spend trying to build a brand which is yeah. really difficult you can yeah. put a lot of salespeople on the street that can go actually sell software <laughs> no, no, make, no, make a lot more money yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. we have um you know a couple three people in marketing out of 150 and and i've been a cmo three times and that's how important i think it is at this stage that's that's a pretty big point that's a pretty big exclamation point yeah exactly well jeremy we took more than an hour of your time so i want to want to tell you that we appreciate you spending an hour with us thank you very much that was a lot of fun thanks for the questions yeah get to reminisce a bit yeah thank you yeah well, thanks to Jeremy Burton and thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. Forcemanagement.com.